Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back to our second hour of Amplify, where our guest this evening is James Day. He's the author of a book titled St. Michael, the Archangel. So far, we've been talking about the primary functions as he has in the book, in the life of faith, are to do battle against Satan and his minions, to defend the faithful from Satan's temptations and clutches, including a death, and to be the protector of God's people. And uh, in the traditions of the Near East, he's considered to be a healer, both of physical healing and the stress uh, caused by worldly demands. Tell us a little bit about uh, the meaning of the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. Well, that's where we uh, where we really get to know Michael's honor and attributes, and it's really through understanding and reflecting on that twelfth chapter, which I'll just mention is, you know, we would know it by uh, there was a war that broke out in heaven, right? Dot dot dot. And, you know, from there it tells us about 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 the dragon and about about Michael. What's what's interesting to me when I was working on this. And I never thought about it before. And actually, Father Ron, I'd like to hear, you know, see what you please weigh in here is, um, you know, is this the uh, war in heaven that took place between Michael and Lucifer uh, at the beginning of time that sent, that sent Lucifer down in, in, into hell? Or is this the end times battle that... Uh, wherein the Antichrist uh, emerges and, and things are uh, the apocalypse, essentially, is, you know, what, which battle are we, are, we, are we working with here in Revelation 12? It, because it is a bit, um, it's a bit vague to and, me. Yeah, my belief is that it's uh, the apocalypse, that it is the final battle before the final judgment. Um, so that's the way I've looked at it during the course of my life. I'm not a scripture scholar. Don't mean to say that, but that's the way I've always read uh, the Revelation, Book of Revelation, chapter twelve. And if I can add, what what really made me think about that was because Daniel, going back to the Old Testament, Daniel twelve is almost a, a, a mirror of Revelation twelve because Daniel twelve also mentions Michael. Uh, and there's this interplay, um, it, and, and Daniel has one of the most um, 
references to Michael in the Old, in the Old Testament, really in all of Scripture. So it's it's really interesting that that both chapters, uh, you know, in those books have have Michael. So in a way, it is maybe perhaps a bookend, you know, where where old the Old Testament is is the beginning. Mm-hmm. And yes. Revelation is the end, and, and we can expect Michael to be doing battle all the way up until until that second coming. Why is it that you uh, selected um, the that um, Michael was the protector of of France? And uh, I, I said my history was not good. I could not remember King Clovis the first, who was only fifteen when he succeeded his father as king, but Charlemagne you indicated, possessed an acute awareness of Michael's importance in the cosmic struggle against uh, Satan. We can wonder how Michael influenced him. And many centuries later, we know that Michael influenced uh, St. Joan of Arc. Even the, He didn't even abandon her when she was in prison, is what you write. That's right. And I Exactly. I didn't want this to be dismissed. I, I didn't want to overlook how important Michael was in, in, to France, to Catholic France. Yes. Uh, and actually, this is where a lot of the Shroud of Turin research... Uh, so I, I did a lot of research on the Shroud. I put it aside to work on the Michael book, but I didn't put aside how important uh, Christian history is to, to, to the light, to, to tradition, to, to people really, really rooted themselves in, in, in Christian tradition. In other words, there would be no France as we know it today without its Catholicism. And Michael is at the heart of of all of those major events throughout Christian slash French history, if you will. Kind of there's there's elements where I talk about other countries and, and the East and that sort of thing, but really France, and of course uh, and of course Italy uh, and Rome, but really France has this uh, major uh, connection with Michael. I mean, he is one of uh, one of their patrons, as Joan of Arc would be added later. Uh, and both of them uh, fought really uh, together. Michael, through influence of, of his vision, through of his voices, which is kind of interesting. I mean, one can get psychological with what was going on with this young Joan of Arc at the time. But um, but it is not to be denied that she saved France from from English rule. I mean, Paris was under English control at this time. And uh, so anyway, but you know, I, I had to go back to the beginning because Michael was there from the time King Clovis who was uh, not Christian, unified the, the tribes of Franks and to, to really mm-hmm. become what we know as France. The Clovis is really a, a beloved in France to this day. And it was his wife, uh, Clotilde, who, who actually became a saint and uh, was baptized by Remigius, who also is, uh, the bishop is also a saint. And uh, it was really on, on Michael's day in, in which... Uh, in which Clovis really had his uh, conversion because of because he it was a successful battle. So in a way, uh, because of uh, the battles of France throughout history, Michael's uh, role as as fighter, as soldier, as as you know, as a military figure really uh, emphas- really united France throughout history. And there once, as you point out, there was a military order of Saint Michael in France that was abolished in seventeen. 17- uh, 90, um, temporarily restored in the 19th century, but has disappeared like so much of uh, the France's Catholic past. Now, yes. take, take you took me on a journey at this point in your book. And again, the title is uh, St. Michael the Archangel. We're talking with James Day. Um, the Sword 
of St. Michael. When I saw that chapter heading, I thought, oh, what are we going to talk about? The sword, (laughs) which is one of the ways in in which Michael is pictured in his fight with the dragon, uh, in his fight with uh, Lucifer. Um, Tell us about the sword of St. Michael. Um, It is a geographic line, you indicate, stretching from the windswept isles of Ireland to the holy land of Israel. Yeah, so just when you thought you had enough history with, uh, with Michael and Fred, yes. uh, here, here he, he expands his, uh, his, his horizons, and it, it is really remarkable. Uh, the Sword of St. Michael is a phrase used to describe a series of shrines and monasteries that are named for St. Michael, simply put. But there's much more to it, and it's helpful if you uh, look this up, you'll see a map of, um, of, of what we're discussing to really understand it's it's one access point, one line, one straight line uh, on on the map that runs from Ireland all the way down to Israel, and uh, there's St. Michael shrines are all on the same point. This is not something that was planned, uh, but at the same time, you know, you can't, I, you know, I don't. I, you have to turn things over to the hands of providence sometimes, and so you know you look at uh, you look at what what the, what does this mean? So you know you take Skellig Michael in Ireland, you take St Michael's Mount in England, and of course a lot of us are familiar with Mount Saint Michel in France. These are the first three in the sort of St Michael, these shrines dedicated to St Michael throughout history, and which all end up on this on this line. But the line extends. Uh, without wavering, through France to Sacre de Saint Michel in uh, Turin, through Italy to Mount Gargano on the Adriatic side, continues through Greece, and again culminating in, in Israel. With um, it's not so much a Saint Michael shrine as it is a, a general sort of a shrine for for many. Uh, it's a Carmelite shrine, but but we can identify Michael as, as being part of it. It's where the, the, the line culminates. So he his presence, his devotion is, is dominant through Europe, but it's all on this same access point, right. which is truly fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. You, I was going to use the same word that uh, was very fascinating to me, and you write the shrines and monasteries along this sword of St. Michael may have been locations originally for pagan purposes, but they transformed into holy places for the Most High. In honoring St. Michael, the angel so loyal to the Holy Trinity, these sanctuaries testify that the God of Jesus Christ is the one true God. And then just jumping around a little bit here, St. Michael links them all and directs them toward the heavenly Jerusalem. Each of these sanctuaries testifies to the endurance of the faith in season and out of season. When seen with the eyes of faith, the past is no longer remote and irrelevant. How can we not be inspired by the ambition of our ancestors in faith to honor the living God? Our journey along the sword of St. Michael instills a renewed sense of pilgrimage. And then you close by saying, perhaps, by writing, perhaps we might begin to look at ourselves as pilgrims first and then tourists. Doing so might just increase increase our own connection to our spiritual past while instilling a new sense of responsibility 
in preserving these sites of faith for the future. So in their own way, they are very important. They are. Thank you. Wonderful to, to hear you read. It's, it's very calming. And, and uh, so thank you. And I'm able to reflect uh, with the audience as you read with the listeners. Uh, it it kind of gives me some new perspective on, on what we're talking about, this notion of pilgrimage. Yes, you know, you look at the shrine and say, oh, this, this could be a pilgrimage. You know, here's one stop, here's the second stop, here's the third stop. It's a, it's, it's, but again, it, it's not like it was, it was not scripted, if you will. It, it, it just happened to be, and it, it was only really discovered, I believe, in the 60s. Uh, I mentioned it in the book, a, a fellow uh, named Amandola sort of figured out that, wait a minute, there, that there's this, this access that stretches and stretches, and they're all they're all St. Michael's shrines. So it's not something that's that's been around, but the shrines have, and the devotion has. And so I, I really hope that we can um, start to see ourselves as pilgrims first, beyond tourists. Europe remains a great uh, beloved destination place, and the cathedrals and other elements of our faith are always places on which people stop. And I think we have an opportunity here if we look at this sort of St. Michael, to see a, an opening in, in, in reconnecting with our faith and, and reconnecting as pilgrims. Skellig Michael, that first shrine, for instance, up in Ireland, was used as a location in one of the mo- more recent Star Wars films. So that really drew a, attention to it in a way that maybe it wouldn't have otherwise. So I'm hopeful we have an opportunity. Uh, we just need to um, rethink of, of who we re we have to ask ourselves, are we Catholic first and foremost? And from there, we can really change the world. And um, um, I'm relying on memory, and that's not always as good for me today, but aren't they built right in a line, the line of the sun, where the way the sun right. travels? And so it's, right. almost, so it's almost like there's some uh, something very... Um, supernatural about this in terms of they were following this line of the sun. Exactly, and I think we can we can take that that element that so these shrines were from the people who de- depending on where they were geographically they said they were honoring the sun. These were pagan tribes, for lack of a better word, but they were fulfilled in Michael. They were fulfilled mm-hmm. in devotion to Michael. Ultimately, they were fulfilled in, in devotion to who Michael served, which is Christ, you know, the, yes. uh, the triune God. And I, and I hear I, hear I quoted Pope Benedict from his uh, book, Jesus of Nazareth, who acknowledged the shadowy guises in, in pagan religions. They were, they were on the right track towards acknowledging God, they, towards acknowledging Christ. They just, they didn't have, they, they, they didn't have the revel, revelation, you know. So here we do have we have an example, physical example of that fulfillment of what was once pagan has now been reborn, remade in the in the vision uh, in the vision of Christ, in the vision of God through Michael. And um, you talk about um, Saint Michael in the 19th century, and you write um, Christianity became something to suppress and replace in the post Enlightenment period. Marxism, communism, socialism, masonry, positivism, liberalism, modernism, and relativism all contended as attractive alternatives to the one true Catholic faith. And uh, they're, they're movements that are still alive today, aren't they? 
absolutely. That was one of those striking uh, kind of connections, veiled connections to, to today's mentality that we're, that we're seeing. And, you know, when I was writing the book, this was before, it was written mostly in 2019. And 2020 was really the proofing and the preparation of printing and that sort of thing. So it predated a lot of the chaos that we've encountered in 2020. Uh, but yet it remains very timely uh, because uh, because of what, what we're seeing. And I don't have to go into detail. I think we all, we all know that. So it really shows Michael's relevance throughout time. And, and here, he is, here, here he is yet again as a figure who we can look to for hope amid the chaos when I think a lot of us are maybe wondering, where do I fit in or what's going to happen with, with us? What's, what is normal these days? So it's really an opportunity to, to look at things anew. Maybe we can look at it through the lens of, of Michael himself. One of the fascinating uh, spiritual experiences um, by one of our popes in the past, Pope Leo Thirteenth, on October Thirteenth, 1884, was a vision he had. We have a couple more minutes before we take our break. Tell us a little bit about that vision. I'll just quickly mention that, this, yes, this is October 13th, 1884. This was 33 years before the Fatima apparitions. And uh, there's, the story goes is that he, at Mass, at the foot of the altar, he experienced a trance in which he heard both the voices of our Lord, both the voices of Satan, kind of uh, saying, how much can I get away with? And basically God saying, go, or, you know, Christ saying, go for it, you know, do what you can. Out of this kind of harrowing experience, uh, Leo went back to his study and came up with the, with the prayer to St. Michael that we all know and love to, to this day. Right, and uh, he, um, his expression was one of horror and, and awe, and uh, the color and look on his face changing rapidly, and I'm reading from your book, uh, something unusual and grave was happening to him at the age of 74, he fell into a trance-like state at the foot of the altar, frozen, unmoving, his face terrified. And as you said, uh, the, the, what resulted that day was the composition of the prayer to St. Michael. But the invocation was given um, so much importance that it was among the rare non-liturgical elements added to the Mass, considered to be kind of sacred and wouldn't be touched. But the question is asked, what is it that transfixed Leo at the foot of the altar? And there's a popular story you you write about around this uh, that described the Pope hearing two voices, one guttural and one gentle, emanate from the tabernacle area, which he deemed to be the voices of Satan and one of the Lord. And the guttural voice, the voice of Satan boasting, said, I can destroy your church. And the general voice, you can then go ahead and do so. Satan, to do so, I need more time and power. How much time? How much power? Satan says 75 to 100 years and greater power over those who will give themselves over to my service. And our Lord says, you have the time, you will have the power do with them what you will. And then you write, well, it may be interesting to try to calculate the time frame granted to certain to Satan for his feckless goal or to debate the authenticity of the exchange. Luther, Leo's immense contribution resulted in devotion to St. Michael. Stay there, James. We're going to take our last break. 
Welcome back to uh, the final segment of Amplify with our guest James Day talking about his book, St. Michael, the Archangel. Um, we may have been giving you the image of the warrior, the protector that St. Michael is, but there is still another image, and it is as um, an angel of peace. And James writes in his book, while images of Michael invoke war and combat, his presence reflects the peace of God. We've seen how he remains a steadfast intercessor despite whatever tribulation threatens to overwhelm the life of faith at any given time. Though St. Michael is undeniably associated with themes of spiritual combat and warfare, his service to the Trinity makes him an icon of peace. Tell us a little bit about that icon of peace with regard to the two great world wars, the third secret of Fatima, for example, and uh, however else you would like to present him that way. Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, I was thinking during the break, we were talking about the image, that the famous iconic image of Michael suppressing uh, the dragon. Uh, that was great, the, the dragon slash Lucifer, because it is a, they are almost, you know, essentially one and the same. And I was thinking, um, it's almost as if Michael is offering uh, Lucifer there a second chance, because he's not there to put the final sword into Lucifer. Lucifer lives. Lucifer lives on as as the angelic being of the un, of the netherworld. So, but, he, but he's given perhaps he's given a chance at at a kind of redemption at. At, at a penance, but anyway, uh, and so it's something to think about. But I think it, it does reflect on the angel of peace motif. And in the 20th century, where we saw resurgence in the 19th century, in the 20th century, it's a real fulfillment that Michael is here, and he is here with us. And I'll just say, um, oftentimes we we are we're curious: is Michael the angel with the flaming sword in the Fatima apparitions? And it's not precisely said. We don't know, and so I didn't want to go as far as to claim that he is. And in fact, I excised one chapter, one segment on the history of when I was researching his whether he was really involved in the Fatima apparitions. You look at the history of Portugal, and there is this angel of Portugal who continuously appears throughout uh, the history of, of, of Christian Portugal. And I really wanted to make that connection as being St. Michael, but I refrained because of lack of lack of concreteness. But it is very interesting that it, in all probability it probably is. Um, but it also occurred during the second world, during the first world war, as, as you mentioned. Um, and there is just so much there that that Michael was involved in, in a war that truly uh, Europe and especially France lost its soul. Uh, a generation of men were annihilated by the Great War. And the Great War occurred in places uh, throughout France that were historically Catholic. And in many ways, undoubtedly, battles occurred to churches demolished that were named for St. Michael. So it, it really is a, a tragedy. I did want to touch quickly, because there is so much to but on during World War II, the 82nd Airborne Division, um, part of the great... Um, Defense uh, or rally to save France and turn the tide against against the Axis. Uh, the, the jump into Normandy again, another part where Mont Saint Michel is located. 
But um, the 82nd Airborne Division of the U.S. Army has a uh, an event called the St. Michael's Day Jump, which is occurs on May 8th, mm-hmm. and May 8th is is one of St. Michael's feast feast days. It's it's the uh, one of the apparitions of Mount Gargano. But the point is, is that the St. Michael's Day Jump is, is a is still held today. Chaplains come in and they instruct those who are going to jump on St. Michael. And, and, and so you have this blend between the secular and, and the sacred in, in a real beautiful way. And um, someone to whom, with for whom you have great respect, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who was Pope Benedict XVI, uh, postulated his theological commentary on the third secret of Fatima when he wrote that the angel with the flaming sword on the left of the mother of God recalls similar images in the book of Revelation. This represents the threat of judgment which looms over the world. Today, the prospect that the world might be reduced to ashes by a sea of fire no longer seems pure fantasy. Man himself, with his inventions, has forged the flaming sword. That's that's Colonel Ratzinger. So insightful, isn't it? It, it, it's 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 powerful. It, yes, it's powerful and insightful, and it shows. Well, first off, how indebted we are to the theology and the and and how uh, Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict, slash Cardinal Ratzinger can articulate these complex themes, and and how he can articulate and verbalize something that was entirely visual, which was the the apparitions uh, of Fatima. And I just wanted to point out about that. I mentioned when we were discussing Pope Leo's experience with the trance that ultimately ended up in, in the comp- composition of the prayer of St. Michael. It was the same day, 33 years apart. So, you know, which was October 13th, 1884, October 13th, 1917, the culmination of the Fatima events uh, with the miracle of the sun. So one can say, well, was the 75 to 100 years that Satan asked for in Pope Leo's vision. When did that start? When did it end? And mm-hmm. that's where I say you, you, can, you trivialize, trivialize that. It doesn't matter when. It could be going on now. Uh, the point is, is we, we are given these tools that the faith has given us in very dramatic ways to combat evil. And um, there is a sense in which revelation quote-unquote, continues to unravel uh, as we uh, attempt to understand through the events of history, even today, what's going on and and what happens and the response to it to see that uh, God is at work in the midst of everything and there's something to learn. At, at any time, there is a supernatural event that takes place in the, in the midst of evil. Um, one was that as you point out in your book, that many miraculous events happened on the same month and the same day. And it's hard to say that there, that was by coincidence. Exactly. Exactly. So there are, there are events throughout history that all connect to St. Michael. Uh, it, it reminds me of the shrines of the Sword of St. Michael, which there was, there's a connection that ultimately emerges but it wasn't planned. And I think it, it's remarkable. This is where, if I can say, the church calendar has been lost. And I really wish we can reorient our lives around the, the beauty of the church calendar and, and who, which 
beauties are being celebrated. And we can really identify with our ancestors and the faith that way. And, we, and it's a way to go forward, a way to teach teach our future generations about it. But it, it just shows this remarkable, supernatural unf- breadcrumbs that are being dropped, um, wake-up calls, if you will, that continually show up throughout history to say, to, to really make us think about um, the, the true presence of angels, the true presence of God in our lives, and what we can do with that knowledge, the, the opportunities we have in, uh, to convert and to convert those around us. And if we truly believe that the battle continues in the heavens, then there's something to be learned from that, um, from the, as, as we talked about, the sacred events uh, in, in life that, that still continue. And as you pointed out, for many centuries, September 29th was devoted solely to Michael. And that changed, right? Now it's the the three archangels that we believe exist. In the Byzantine Church, he is honored on uh, November the 8th, as I recall. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. And then May 8th. Is uh, was also the uh, uh, a day to Saint Michael, the the, the, the celebrating the, the presence, the, the apparition of Michael at the Mount Gargano, which is one of the shrines of Saint Michael, detailed in the book. It's, it's the, the second one in Italy. So look at uh, suddenly you have which we know is September 29th, where Michael is packed in, and I don't want to I don't want to criticize the 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 current. Uh, church calendar at all, but suddenly you have a whole vast array of, of, of dates, of feast days celebrated around Michael that have been condensed into September 29th. And when, as you, as you know, uh, Father Ron, when, when, when saints are given multiple feast days, that's a pretty important, pretty good sign of their importance. And I think, I think of the Blessed Mother, who, who has so many of those herself. So uh, that's something that we can't dismissed that Michael is venerated in through the church calendar through all these feast days. There there are some there I shouldn't say there was at least someone uh, who in trying to answer that question that's certainly not the position of the church at this point, so I don't mean to say anything differently, but that there are there is only uh, one archangel in terms of Saint Michael is also the other two that we honor on that day. And it's just that they're they're presented in the role that they had, uh, and uh, that it's one. What? Why open that up, right? Except that you had said we're still living with 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 mystery. Saint Michael in the Mass. Um, he has an exalted place in the Mass, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Um, especially, we can understand that through the extraordinary form of the Mass. And I want to take specifically the Confitior, the I Confess, because in the, in the Latin Mass, um, Michael is mentioned, is evoked twice. And he's, he's evoked very high up in the hierarchy, uh, right up there with, with the Blessed Mother. So uh, that's just one example. Uh, he returns when at a high Mass when the priest incenses the altar right before the canon. Uh, for the consecration, he when the priest uh, rounds the altar, which is you know still still done today, but but in the Latin Mass, Michael is specifically evoked as the angel to 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 
to bring the, that incense up, up to heaven, to bring our prayers, to bring this offering up to the Father. So that's something we can think about when that occurs, uh, when we're at Mass today, when the priest is, uh, is doing that. We can think of Michael, and, not, and, and Michael specifically as being at the right hand uh, of the altar. Also, he's uh, known as the, uh, one of his names, as the, 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 you know, the saint, the protector of the Blessed Sacrament. Right. Uh, which makes sense. You know, when you think about his duty, his honor to God, he is going to defend God in every aspect. So, of course, he's going to be right there for every Mass when, when the, the Eucharist is, is manifested, the Eucharistic Lord. Yes. Let's uh, talk a little bit about St. Michael and uh, death. Again, the title of your book is St. Michael the Archangel. Um, you write, in Jewish eschatology... Michael is the guide of souls in death. He is the one who will sound the trumpet for the dead to rise. This belief continues into Christian tradition. As through one's life, St. Michael's role at the hour of death is also associated with safeguarding and protection. These last moments of earthly life offer one final opportunity for Satan to unleash an attack the last chance to bring souls to the netherworld. Tell us a little bit about St. Michael and death. Mm. Well, I certainly, uh, I certainly wanted to include how important St. Michael was in death. It, it's, it, it occurs at the, it kind of culminates the whole, the whole book, and it, because it shows how how Christian thought is so well thought out. It, it, of course, Michael is going to be involved at the end of at the end of one's life because, in a way, one is experiencing the last things at that moment. So, even if it isn't the uh, the ultimate, the final judgment, it it still is the end of one's life. So, of course, Michael is going to be hovering around, uh, protecting, um, doing battle because it is it is the last gasp, as you said, it's the last moment Satan can snatch a soul from, from into his clutches. And so Michael will be there. Ultimately, as you, said, as you said earlier, it's free will, though. The person has a choice up until the end. Do you want to serve God, or do you not want to serve God and serve thyself? And it, what we see in the battle between Michael and Lucifer is the battle of who we are as human beings throughout life. Do we serve God? Do we serve our pride? Do we serve, in a way, do we serve Lucifer? And I think that kind of, that culminates, that we have that dramatic conclusion at, at death. So it's really an exciting thing to think about. You know, we, we, have our, we have a choice to make up until the end, and Michael will be there to help us, as, as we see in these, in these writings and these beliefs in, in, in Christian thought. And you point out that St. Alphonsus and other saints have uh, expounded on St. Michael as the guardian of purgatory, one who will remain in his role as protector of souls as the righteous are purified to meet the eternal light of the Holy Face. Yes, uh, the Holy Face, uh, that's one of the images I wanted to include. I'm very grateful to our Sunday visitor because we have images in the book, and the first image I chose is the archangels um, as if there are Veronica in Veronica's veil, you know, Veronica clutching the, the, 
the cloth, here in this particular image are the three archangels clutching the holy face. Um, it puts a face to to God, as, as Pope Benedict so beautifully talks about. God has a face through, in Christ, and I and I think it's very important to remember that Michael knows this face. Michael does not serve an ethereal God mm-hmm. from before time began. Michael serves the Triune God. Michael serves the Holy Face, the Holy Face of Jesus Christ. And um, the uh, end times, um, you have this quote. From citation from we were talking earlier, this one's from Deuteronomy twelve one to three. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of a firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Our guest this evening has been James Day. We've been talking about his book, St. Michael the Archangel. Um, favorite topic, and Michael, I um, I hope you'll come back whenever you finish that next book on the Shroud of Turin. Another uh, area that I'm that I'm fascinated by because I think there's a lot we can we can learn from from that shroud, especially with the modern technology that's available to us today to prove what is true and what is not true. And I believe there's so much uh, to be proven to be true. So. Thank you very much. Blessings to you and your family, and thank you for spending uh, the time with us this evening. It's my pleasure, Father Ron. Thank you, and God bless you. All right, you too. Good night. So there's a little bit about uh, St. Michael, uh, the the archangel, and uh, towards the uh, end of the book, um, James writes about St. Michael and, and you, And he writes, St. Michael has emerged as a powerful intercessor for guidance and protection, taking our prayers and petitions to the merciful throne of Almighty God. We can be sure of this especially when we are struggling in the heat of spiritual battle, surrounded by temptations and the snares of the devil. We are challenged to overcome the allure of the worship of graven images and idols in place of God. Relativism excuses any kind of behavior under the banner of one's personal truth. In this way, one's ego may become one's God. St. Michael challenges us to better understand our faith's history. We are part of a rich tradition, and we yearn for Michael to once again bend our culture toward the light of faith. Michael's fearlessness to confront evil is a challenge for us to cultivate an interior life and to discern spirits to determine what is of God and what is not. From the obscure depths of the Ninth Choir of Angels, Michael dramatically triumphed in the war of heaven to become God's fearless angel. It is in Michael's great moment of victory 
that he challenges us once more. Each and every day of our lives presents challenges of its own. We must actively promote the triumph of humility, to find sanctity in the rejected, and to give hope to the forgotten and the abandoned. In effect, to serve God as Michael did so that the last will be first and the first last. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone and come back next Sunday and amplify with us.